Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 28. After Hours with Reverend David Beckman. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. And this season we're discussing Till We Have Faces. But today is an After Hours episode. And so rather than having Matt here, I'm joined by Reverend David Beckman, who's just released a short book entitled Life with the Professor, The True Story Behind the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It's a book about Lewis, his home, and the evacuees who came to stay with him during World War II. Reverend David Beckman is a priest in the Anglican Church of North America. He is currently the executive director of the Christian Study Center of Chattanooga, and is a former director of the C.S. Lewis Study Center at the Kilns in Oxford, England. He was the moderator of the C.S. Lewis Society of Chattanooga for many years, and is a regional representative of the C.S. Lewis Foundation. A native Chattanoogan, he earned his B.A. at the University of South Carolina in history, and he holds an M.Div. degree, magna cum laude, from the Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Reverend Beckman blogs at revbeckman.com and cslewis.org. Reverend Beckman, Welcome to Pints with Jack. Well, thank you for having me, David. And this is actually the second time that we're speaking, because the first time we were halfway through a delightful conversation and my computer decided to shut down and save nothing. Yeah, so we will endure all things. Yes, and I think my pronunciation of Chattanooga is, is much better this time. The first time through, I kept tripping up over it. Uh, it definitely has improved. I think you've, you've gotten there now. <laughs> well, it's the middle of my workday, so I can't really have scotch, at least not yet, or at least I'm not going to admit it if I am. Uh, but I'm instead having a cup of red rooster tea. Are you drinking anything? Yes, that's lovely. I am having Yorkshire gold in my Oxford University mug. Yorkshire gold. For the uninitiated, Yorkshire gold is amazing. It's tea that will put hair on your chest. There you go. So that was the drink of the week. And for the quote of the week, I have a short extract from On Three Ways of Writing for Children. Lewis wrote, I am almost inclined to set up as canon that a children's story which is enjoyed only by children is a bad children's story. And so with that, cheers. Cheers. Very nice. With a little milk and uh, sweetener. I will, I will allow the milk. I would go for real sugar personally, but uh, <laughs> when, when I was a kid, my mother wouldn't let us put sugar in our tea, except when I went to other people's houses. Okay. So that was when I went crazy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. How did you first discover Lewis? Uh, what, what, what kind of role has he played in your, in your life and in your spiritual journey? Well, Dave, uh, it's, I have to think back a good, good while, back to my college days in the 1970s, but I really believe that, that's, uh, that what happened was I heard about Lewis through InterVarsity and Campus Crusade uh, conferences that I attended. Uh, they would have book tables there, and uh, I've got books. I know that from the dates and the condition, just my memory, I'm pretty sure I bought them off of those, those book tables. And um, Screw Tape Letters, Mere Christianity, Problem of Pain, all the, the real classics. And uh, my faith was uh, challenged a good bit in college, and so I was very hungry for things to help me to develop a Christian mind and to... Um, think intellectually about the Christian faith, and Lewis was uh, just a real blessing to me. I really appreciated him, and and I've, and I've then, of course, after that came Narnia and all the rest of it, and I've just loved Lewis ever since. Ah, uh, so you came to Narnia after his apologetics works. Yes, that's correct. Ah. I know you never, you know, people come th through Lewis all kinds of different ways, but that was my path. Hmm. 
But at some point, your relationship with Lewis got kind of serious because you became the director of the C.S. Lewis Study Center at the Kilns. How did that come about? Well, the short story is that uh, I was teaching at the University of Tennessee and at a local Christian school. And for different reasons, uh, I lost those positions. And my wife started praying that uh, God would just have somebody call me on the phone and offer me a job. (laughs) And so uh, the current uh, director uh, at the Kilns called me on the phone and offered me the job. (laughs) Nice. I I think I might ask your wife to pray that I get that job because that sounds like an awful lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, uh, she was a good friend of ours. We had uh, visited her at the Kilns and had known her for a number of years and uh, we were uh, in, um, con- connected with the C.S. Lewis Foundation indirectly. Uh, so a number of things just came together. It was you know, what people call a God thing. Um, but initially I said no, because we were expecting our third grandchild, and I just could not conceive of taking my wife to England when we had this child coming. But everybody said, you've got to do this. And so <laughs> we did. I gave in. You have good friends. <laughs> <laughs> now, you just released your book, Life with the Professor. The true story behind the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Uh, what was it that motivated you to write this book and now? Well, part of it is I love the story. Uh, I, I love all things uh, Britain during World War II, um, and with my connection with the Kilns and and with Lewis and so forth, this was something that I was naturally interested in. But I also presented this material at the ta- one of the Taylor University uh, colloquiums about C.S. Lewis and. Uh, one of the people that uh, one of the folks that were uh, was there asked if I had anything in print about it. And I didn't. And I thought, well, maybe I should do that. And uh, it's taken a while, but I finally did. And I actually uh, sent uh, a proof copy to that uh, person um, just to to show her her influence. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. A, a couple of years ago, I visited the Kilns. And as I was reading your book, it, it really struck me that it would be really good preparatory reading for any tourists preparing to visit Lewis's home or to read afterwards. Yes, it introduces you to the house itself. I mean, there's there's things if you have a knowledgeable tour guide at the Kilns, which hopefully you 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 would have. Um, uh, you know, it does introduce you to a lot of the, the background of of the Kilns, um, but uh, especially the World War II era, uh, which is, uh, you know, leads right up to the composition of the Narnian Chronicles, uh, which was in the, uh, which followed immediately after the war. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, I think it's a fun book myself. And it was a very quick read. I got through it practically, I think in two sittings, it was two pots of tea, I think. <laughs> it is short. <laughs> it is short. Now, what were your sources of information when you were writing this book? What were your primary sources? Well, as I say in the preface, uh, Pretty much the, all the biographies of Lewis will at least mention the evacuees from London uh, during World War II. Um, and uh, some of them will talk about, uh, that is, some of the biographers will, will talk about one, you know, some of them and the others. But there, there's not been a place where all the available information has been gathered together so that you've got the full story with the chronology, some research done. And uh, also, uh, one of the uh, evacuees is a rather uh, famous uh, lady named Lady Jill Freud, and um, I was able to get in touch with her, and she was happy to answer all my questions. Uh, So there there was that. Also, a fun thing that happened was, um, while I was the director there at the Kilns, I wanted to set up Lewis's uh, post-war office, 
uh, the way it looks in the pictures that we have of him writing at his desk. Mm -hmm. So I put a desk there right, right in this place where it was in the room. And I tried to find objects that are, are in the picture and arrange them properly. And I got books and things. And then I came across a file that had the first volume of the New York Society, uh, C.S. Lewis Society's newsletter in it. And there was a letter uh, from one of the evacuees uh, talking about her time. And I thought, oh, well, that's great. I did find that elsewhere later on in, in printing another book. I, and I provide references for all that. But the point of the matter is, it's just it's just stuff that's been I've been collecting over you know last few years. And let's talk about the book's dedication. Who is it dedicated to and why is she called the glory of the kilns? <laughs> The book is dedicated to Lady Jill Freud, who is the evacuee that I mentioned earlier. She's the one that the biographers tend to mention uh, because uh, she had. Well, I don't say. Yeah, I would say it's because uh, uh, first of all, she's famous. She's famous as an actress. She was married to the son of Sigmund Freud, Sir Clement Freud, uh, who was a, a big BBC person, TV uh, personality over in England. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. But she's also been happy to talk about her experience through the years. She's had some articles. Uh, inter- she's been interviewed. She's been on, uh, you know, some television things and so forth. Uh, and so um, she was, uh, you know, she's been identified with that period of time. And the thing is that is that uh, she was very helpful to me uh, in producing the book. But the the main factor is the appreciation that Lewis and his brother Warney had for her. Her name back then was June Fluitt. I tell in the book uh, about the change of her name. But um, she uh, came there as an evacuee, but she saw how much uh, they needed her. And so she stayed on beyond the. She got permission from her parents to stay on. And she was there for about two years or so, there to the end of the war. And in fact, uh, the Lewis brothers had to write to her family to encourage them to, to get her to, to leave and go back to school because otherwise she wasn't going to go. And I came across a letter in the Taylor University letter collection of C.S. Lewis. Uh, where uh, he was writing to uh, her mother after she had returned home. And he said at the end of the letter, Ichabod, Ichabod, we are the ruin of a house. And of course, Ichabod means the glory has departed. So Lewis was calling her the glory of the kilns. And so um, I dedicated it to her because of their appreciation of her. She's one of the evacuees. Um, She was helpful to me. And also, uh, to honor her as uh, I think Lewis and, and Warning would like. And wasn't she also at least the partial inspiration for Lucy Pevensey? Yes, uh, Douglas Gresham told her that, and uh, she was uh, very impressed by that. She she was uh, it, it made she's a rather humorous person, and she did say something along the lines of, "I just can't imagine uh, people thinking that this." This uh, elderly lady, she's not that elderly, but this older lady is the inspiration for this little girl, you know, but uh, that was quite a right. I'm sure she was honored by it. And uh, I think probably going forward, can you just talk us through how your book is structured? What kind of areas do you talk about? Right. It's pretty chronological from around 1930 to 1945. I talk about the acquisition of the house in 1930 um, and uh and then uh, as I get into the war, I talk about people that are living in the house during the war. I talk about the evacuees as they came and went because they came in different sets at different times. And um, and then I just have some observations that, that I've made on Lewis's relationship with, with the girls. Okay, then let's, let's start with the house itself. What can you tell us about Jack's home in Oxford? Well, it's something of a sprawling bungalow. Um, 
it's brick house, tile roof, uh, very much uh, the period house with, uh, you know, it was built around 1922. We don't know who built it, but it was built at that time. So it had a, a lot of the uh, more middle class sort of aspects to it. Um, at the time when they bought it, it was out in the countryside, which is one of the reasons why Lewis and his and his brother Warney liked it so much because they wanted to get away from from town. They wanted to have their privacy and so forth. Um, it is kind of sprawling, but it's not as big as the house that is depicted in um, the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. That's a, a much larger house, which we think is probably Lewis was probably basing that on the house Little Lee that he had grown up in himself back in Ireland. Uh, but um, you can imagine the, the 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 kids running around in the place. Uh, <laughs> it is it is two story, but er, everything's mostly on the the, the ground floor. Um, so uh, one of the good things about the house, I don't know if we were going to talk about this later, but I can probably go ahead and put this in now, is the fact that um, after War, uh, Lewis's brother Warney died and the, the house was sold, the people that uh, moved into the house. Uh, uh, updated it in 1970s fashion. So, so in came the orange shag carpet and the <laughs> fireplaces were closed up and electric heaters came in and old windows went out and it was, it was uh, uh, abominable. Uh, but uh, they retired from Oxford and uh, the house went on the market and uh, Americans got hold of, of the house uh, and eventually was in the hands of the C.S. Lewis Foundation. And uh, people would take their time in the summers Free time in the summers to go over and Americans, because the British don't British don't care about the house, but that's another story. And um, they went over and fixed it up the way it had made it habitable again and made it look like it did as best they could back in the days when the Lewises lived there. And so it's a it's a real treat to to visit the place. People come from all over the world. Yeah, when I first walked in there, it, it smelled like my grandparents' house. <laughs> Everything just seemed very familiar. <laughs> and I really liked, as I was going through your book, because you include some some blueprints of the floor plans. And so I'd close my eyes and, and walk walk through the house as I remembered it. And, and, and I did chuckle when I saw words like larder and scullery. And I was reading it on the couch and my housemates were in the living room. And so I, I polled them, did they know what these words meant? And... It seemed entirely determined by what kind of books they had read. And unfortunately, like used to scrub, many of them hadn't read the right sort of books. Yes, that'll happen. <laughs> I remember in our tour, well, I remember there was a story of some Russian tourist falling through the ceiling. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, because they were told not to go into the, into the attic part. And yeah, they went into the attic. Too enthusiastic. Yes, there's all kinds of interesting stories like that. The one that really sticks out to me is the fact that when you go upstairs, you have to walk through Mrs. Moore's room in order to get to Jack's room. So what they did is they shut it, locked it, and he would climb out the window when he needed to leave or go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Right, right, yes. Yeah, well, that's that was the deal. And uh, Lewis, uh, you know, he, he was happy to just uh, take the window there and cut a hole uh, in the wall and uh, put a door and climb up and down a ladder uh, initially and then go in uh, under, uh, underneath the house there to the tradesman's uh, entrance, which today it's enclosed, but in those days it was an open breezeway and you use the toilet down there and the winter wind came blowing under the door. Um, but later on, he put in a, a fire escape uh, like a staircase uh, just outside of, of the door so he could go up and down. 
And that's just the way he lived. Uh, so, so if he wanted to go to his bedroom, he had to go out the door uh, and walk around the side of the house and go up the stairs to get into his bedroom. And apparently it stayed like that long after Mrs. Moore was gone. Apparently it was an argument that he had with Joy because they had lost the key and he was still climbing through the window. Well, the guys didn't pay any attention to the house. You know, <laughs> once something was done, it was done. They weren't going to fix it or change it. Well, on that point, I hadn't realized that when Jack and Morney went to go and look at the house, they didn't actually look at the house. They went to the pond, they walked around the area, and it's like, oh, yes, and there's a house there as well. We don't need to go inside. Right, right. Well, actually, the those two guys being who they were, I think if they went in the house, they wouldn't have known whether it was a good house or not. Thankfully, it was fairly new. It was only about eight years old by that time. So if there were any problems, it shouldn't have been too serious. But they were just captivated by the countryside and the beauty of the property because it came with nine acres. And uh, so... Um, so that's what w w really won their hearts to to the location. And that was actually one of the other shocks to me when I went to visit, because all of the pictures I'd seen of the kilns were of the kilns surrounded by empty fields. But when I went there, it was quite a built-up area. Yes, well, what happened was not long after they moved in, probably much to their disappointment, uh, the Cowley car plant was built in South Oxford, where the Morris car and the minis were made. And also during the war, um, Military vehicles were made, and their gardener would have to go down there and work in in the plant. Uh, and so, to accommodate workers, uh, a good bit of the countryside uh, behind the house uh, was uh, filled with semi-detached houses. And um, so, it wasn't long after they moved in that uh, the neighborhood did change. They still had the uh, rustic feel uh, with with their their acreage and so forth. Um, sadly, after Lewis died, uh, Warney was worried about having enough money, which was totally crazy, but he had this <laughs> irrational fear he'd inherited from his dad. And um, so he sold off the property around the house, and I think it was in 1968, a developer came in, put the current Lewis Close in, and built the houses around uh, the, um, the kilns and, uh, and totally changed it, and, and Warney after it happened, deeply regretted that he had, had done that. Um, but um, so that's why it looks like it does today. Now, you mentioned Warney. You've mentioned the gardener. Uh, who else was involved in the house? All right. Well, very key to this, we have to go back to the Great War when uh, Lewis promised uh, a, a soldier buddy of his that if something happened to him, he would take care of his mom and his, and, uh, his sister. Uh, his friend died. And so uh, Lewis, after the war, uh, would uh, he arranged things with this lady. Her name was Mrs. Janie Moore. Her daughter was Maureen Moore. And uh, they would uh, put their monies together and so forth and arrange their living accommodations so that Lewis was able to uh, live with them and take care of them and help them. And though they might move around a little bit here and there, they were always together. And what happened was uh, Warney was going to retire from the Army, and he was going to, and this was in the 30s, and he was going to uh, want to live with them, and they wanted him to be able to live with them, but um, none of the flats that they were, were renting had enough space, and so that's what motivated them. Actually, that would have been in the late 20s because, yeah, Warney was going to retire in the 30s, but they hadn't bought the house yet, and they bought it in uh, September of 1930. So um, uh, they um, went looking for the house, and as Lewis had, had uh, promised to take care of Mrs. Moore, when they did pool their funds with Mrs. Moore's funds as well and, and bought the house, he put it in Mrs. Moore's name with her daughter to inherit. 
Uh, so and and uh, Jack and his brother Warney had the right to live there for the rest of their lives. Uh, but uh, that legal arrangement is just another indication of of how he was taking care of them. So in the house, you've got the two uh, Lewis brothers. You've got Mrs. Moore and Maureen, though she after a year into the war, she marries uh, a music teacher at Malvern College, the Lewis's um, alma mater. And so she's living away, but she's coming back a lot, um, you know, to see her mother and so forth. Um, then there is the, the gardener, Fred Paxford. There's the uh, ladies that would live there and uh, help out with cooking and housework. And they were, you know, several of them at different times. Uh, and then, of course, there once the war started, the evacuees were there. And in your book, you also talk about there being lots and lots of animals, dogs, cats, hens, rabbits. Yes. Yes, there were. And uh, it was a good thing because uh, with the war and rationing hit uh, to have a couple dozen chickens and some rabbits was a very uh, beneficial thing for them to have. Uh, Lewis, of course, loved animals. Uh, when you uh, see the animals at St. Anne's and that hideous strength, I think that that reflects a lot of the life at the kilns because animals were always around. And um, and Mrs. Moore had a particular dog she liked that uh, Lewis um, had to walk all the time. And uh, I think he was relieved when the dog passed away. But anyway, he... he uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, he he loved animals and, um, and and not just the domesticated animals, but the the wild animals around there as well. When I went to go and visit, I arrived a little early and went walking through those woods, and I, I kept a sharp eye out for fawns, but you know didn't see any unfortunately. Next time, uh, and so then the evacuees start turning up. So where where were they coming from? All right, well, these were children that were being evacuated from London during World War II. If you remember the opening scenes of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, that's exactly what was happening. And in fact, the British government, since the, London had been bombed by the Germans in World War I, they were anticipating that if war did break out, that the same thing would happen again. And so they already had arrangements to, um, to get over a million children out of the city into the surrounding countryside uh, even before uh, war was declared. And in fact, uh, they uh, initiated what they called Operation Pied Piper the day before war was declared. And uh, so uh, students were arriving at the house as Warney was walking out the door to uh, reassume a position in the army to to fight in France. So um, so they're there to, to uh, for their, the, their, the safety of their lives, to protect them from the, the German bombs. And... Um, and it just so happens that the uh, uh, well now Mrs. Moore and Mrs. Moore it was her house as I've already said so she would be the, was the one that was uh, arranging um, uh, who would come and she would interview the girls and the girls really liked her she apparently was very nice to to them and uh, and they uh, came uh, by class of, of these these in this particular case at least around Oxford it seems that the authorities arranged for students to come from schools in London by class. And um, so uh, apparently when, well, not just apparently, I'm out, I know that uh, when uh, the class was out of session, that uh, they would go back to London. Uh, why? I don't know. Yeah, that really surprised me when you mentioned that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them perished with her family there. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, Mrs. Moore would, would interview them and she would approve who would be there. And uh, so she's she's kind of the Mrs. McCreary. Uh, McCreary, is that the name? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Of, of the of the story here. Mm -hmm. But apparently a little bit nicer. Yes. Yes, definitely. And you also mentioned that 
they seem to have been drawn almost exclusively from Roman Catholic schools. Yes, and I don't know why, but that is the case. And uh, so there's a, there were a couple of Roman Catholic schools in the area, and they would go to class, and, and Lewis would help them with their homework. And um, and so and, and th- so that's how that it was organized. It wasn't a matter of parents in, in London trying to find somebody to take their kids, but, but the government organized this thing through their schools. And uh, and since they were coming in class, I mean, the, the Lewises would only have just a few of them there. Uh, some of their, their classmates stayed with the Tolkien's. And, <laughs> uh, and so they would uh, go over to the Tolkien's and play together and that kind of thing. And did they move them when they graduated to a new year at school? Because there seem to be a lot of kids that have went through the kilns over the time of the war. Yes, that kind of thing did happen, right? Yeah, as the as the school went, that had a a, a big um, part of of you know what where they would be staying and how long and so forth. Hmm. And so, what do we know about life at the kilns? What was it like living with Lewis and Mrs. Moore? Yes, well, if you were warning, you probably feel as a bit miserable. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the kids loved it; they had a blast. Uh, they could swim in the lake. They could play tennis. They're, of course, you know, play with the chickens or the rabbits or whatever. Uh, Lewis would take them on walks and tell them stories. He'd take them into town. And also, uh, uh, if if he thought Mrs. Moore was being a little bit stingy with the food, he'd sneak them over to the Six Bells pub uh, just down <laughs> the road and, and buy them fish and chips and be sure that they had licked their fingers clean and everything before they walked back in the house so Mrs. Moore wouldn't know about it. Uh, so yeah, they had a great time. They said that they were being spoiled. One of them said, "I got fat." Uh, <laughs> you know, it was they, they were doing well. And then and the older ones, and this is something that I really enjoyed learning about. Uh, the the older girls, Lewis would take them into town because uh, there some there were some uh, difference in ages at, at times, and uh, Lewis was being sensitive to that. And so the older girls, he would take into town and uh, introduce to his friends. And we're talking about, you know, Tolkien and these other guys. <laughs> and um, uh, and 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 uh, and one of the, th- the delights they had, too, was he uh, just said, if you want any books, the black will just go in there and put it on my tab, that sort of thing. Uh, so anyway, for, and, and when you if, if you go to the uh, website that I recommend in the book about uh, the history of the, the story of the evacuees in, in England, a lot of them suffered a lot. They had a hard time. Now, they enjoyed being out in the, the rural countryside. But, you know, there's a seems like uh, there, there were a good number of heads of households that just were not sympathetic with children, you know, maybe didn't even like them, whatever. So there was a, a lot of kids had a hard time. So uh, the uh, the students staying in Oxford with the Lewises were very fortunate indeed. And that's one of the things I particularly liked about your book, because it helps uh, battle the image that movies and plays like The Shadowlands, uh, they portray Lewis as this stoic creature that doesn't like small people at all, uh, that is aloof. But y- your book paints quite a different picture. Yes, indeed. Yes, it is true that Lewis did not think of himself as, you know, being able to do anything with children. He, you know, he he thought that uh, that he just that they just weren't for him or whatever. But these kids show up in the house, and he uses the word delightful. He says this is great, and he he got really liking them, caring for them, having compassion on them, and uh, uh, yeah, he was a very warm character anyway. Uh, he just had not been around kids that much. Uh, so he was warming with the kids when they showed up. So in that case, what, what kind of impact did they have on him? I think that's an important question. Uh, 
there's a story that's told that he came down the stairs one day and uh, Mrs. Moore and Maureen were in the dining room. When you come down the stairs, you, know, you just go around the corner and there's the dining room. He says, I'm going to write a book for children. And they laughed <laughs> <laughs> because it's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, but by that time, uh, he had just gotten such a heart for children. And while we recognize it, that he had a number of reasons for writing the Narnia books, uh, I, I argue, and, I, and um, there are some other people who have indicated this before, that uh, uh, he just got a heart for children uh, during the war. And, um, and so, so there was that personal side of it, that warm personal side of things, uh, caring about, about kids. Mm. And you also noted in your book that when they said that they were bored, he saw that as almost a, a, a flaw in their imaginative capabilities. Yes, yeah, he felt sorry for them, and he would write to people about them and, and talk about how they have no imagination. Uh, when we were kids, we would go out and we would do this, or we would go up in our little room and we would make our stories and draw our pictures and stuff. And um, and, and when Maureen was home, they would go to her. She said, what can we do? What should we do? And then she would say, well, go out and do this. And they would go out and do that. And then they'd come back, well, what else can we do now? We're bored. <laughs> and Lewis saw all this going on. And uh, so he and this is the thing. Lewis was extremely busy during the war. The war wore him out. He's traveling around the RAF bases. He's traveling to London to, to, to record at the BBC. He's teaching. He's grading. He's taking care of Mrs. Moore's dog. He's doing all these things. And then he has these uh, these children in the house. But sacrificially, because he was concerned about them, he took them on as a project, so to speak. And uh, so he would take them for walks and tell them stories, hoping that um, it would help them help their imaginations mm. because he knew how important the imagination is for lots of different reasons, not just so that kids will know what to do with their time, <laughs> uh, but for their adult life as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a picture of Lewis uh, uh, being a. Um, a sacrificial, uh, loving uh, Christian um, man to these these kids. Well, I'm particularly glad that as a result of all of this, we then got the Chronicles of Narnia. And I know my parents are very grateful to him for solving the question when I went to them and said, I'm bored. What should I do? It's like, <laughs> here's a book. Go read it quietly. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, Reverend Beckman, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking with us. Oh, it's delightful. As we wrap up, uh, could you please tell us where people can get your book as well as where they can go online to find out more about you and your work? Yeah. Well, you can find the book on Amazon, uh, amazon.com for the US, .co.uk uh, in England. If you search for it, put in the title Life with the Professor and then put my last name in there uh, with two N's on the end, B-E-C-K-M-A-N-N, -N, and it should pop up. Um, by the way, the title Life with the Professor, uh, you know, Lewis was known as the professor in the neighborhood. That's what they called him. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, he's the professor as you know, he was a real life professor uh, like he was in the books. And then uh, as for myself personally and also uh, links to the book as well, uh, my uh, uh, website, as you had mentioned, RevBeckman.com, all one word, R-E-V as in Victor, B-E-C-K-M-A-N-N uh, dot com. And they can find me there. And I'll put links to all of those in the show notes. Uh, is there an electronic version of your book going to come out? Because at the moment, I only see a paperback edition. Yes, yeah, so there's just a paperback right now. Uh, I've got to do the 
the work to, to get a Kindle version going. I intend to have a Kindle version. Uh, but right now I'm charging the least amount of money that Amazon will let me do for, for the book. So, oh, yeah, it was a bargain. It was five bucks. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you again. And listeners, please join us next Tuesday when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.